Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's excellent. You're a good reader, Miss Wendy. Very good. Okay, what do you got? <laughs> We're going to find out. <laughs> if we had been outdoors today, I was going to wear my Hawaiian shirt in protest. Something wrong with the weather here. Just something wrong. Sanford, Florida, on November 5th of 2018, this was an article that came out. I'm not going to read the whole article, just a little portion of it. After more than 14 years behind bars, including a decade on Florida's death row, Clemente Javier Aguirre was exonerated of all charges today in the 2004 stabbing deaths of his former neighbors, Cheryl Williams and Carol Barice. So he spent 10 years on death row. In a Seminole County courtroom, Circuit Judge John Galuzzo dismissed all charges against Aguirre after prosecutors announced today in the middle of jury selection for his appeal, right in the middle, that they would not proceed with the retrial. He's now 38 years old. He's maintained his innocence from the time of his arrest at age 24 in June 2004. He was convicted of the murders and sentenced to death. So he was uh, let off. <clears throat> Can you imagine, just for a second, what it would be like to be on death row? Death is imminent. He's in his second appeals process, probably going to lose it, um, and die. Can you imagine that just for a minute? What it would be like to be on death row? Now, in his particular case, it doesn't exactly relate to today because he was actually found innocent. The uh, DNA technology had developed enough so that when they went back and checked all of the, the blood spatter and everything, it wasn't his. It belonged to uh, one of the children of the couple. And so right at the last minute, he got off. But just picture, just for a moment, what it's like to be on death row. It's hard, isn't it? Most of us. Ephesians 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. You can't really blame Adam and Eve. They started it. But every one of you sinned. He goes on and says a few verses later, verse 16, The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. That's the status of all of us 
That's the status of every human on the planet. We are on death row. That's the reality of our world. We're on death row. So we are in a series this summer out at the amphitheater. Can you see the smirk? Don't forget, I'm a Florida boy. Pretending to be a mountain guy. It's supposed to be about 100 right now. Maybe 90. Uh, We're in a series. And the series has to do with the Holy Spirit. And we're using the metaphor of life outside the cage. Okay? That what happens when you open the door to the cage? Turning to Christ. We, use, uh, we talked the first couple of Sundays, we used the example of the circus. If you've ever been to the circus, as a young, a young boy, my parents took me often, that we'd go in the back and you see the animals in the cages, and I'm not sure they were mistreated. For the most part, they, were, they seemed to be pretty comfortable and taken care of, but that's not what they were created for. That's just not the way God made them, was to live in cages. But they don't know any different because they've been in cages for their whole life, much like our domesticated animals that live with us. And if we had opened the cage and let them out, they would have no idea what to do or how to survive. And that's, in a sense, what coming to Christ, we're using that metaphor, turning to Christ, is all about, is that the cage opens and you're let outside. But like any of those animals, you would die. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes into the whole picture. The Holy Spirit comes in to guide us through that journey of coming back alive and recapturing what God created us for, life outside the cage. And it's not easy. There's nothing easy about it. We've used a variety of metaphors all summer. We use one, for example, of um, your arm falls asleep. You know what that's like? You lay out the wrong way and you wake up. And when you start to move it and the blood starts circulating, it's really uncomfortable, isn't it, for a few minutes. And that's one of the metaphors we use to what life is like. Christ tried to warn us with that, with all the passages on You know, you should expect mocking, you should expect persecution, you should expect those things. But even more than that, the process of waking up when the blood starts to flow, you begin to realize who you really are and why you actually needed forgiveness. There's a reason for that. How many of you have been around people that are not very forgiving? Most of you. Do you like being with them? No, you don't, do you? Why? Because they're typically not very friendly. They're always right, okay? And they don't ever have the sense that they needed to be forgiven. And what happens is when you start forgiving people, not because they apologize, they repent. Not because they make amends. When you start forgiving people, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, because you have been forgiven already in Christ. Then you begin to realize it's just about one of the hardest actions in life is to forgive someone who is still determined to make your life miserable and is not sorry. And you begin to, as you begin to forgive them, over time what happens when you've practiced that enough, it's one short second before you look into the heavens and you say, was that what it was like to forgive me? And the answer is, Yes, you're not a very nice person. Not in a sinful state. You can pretend all you want. I've said to our church over and over again, this county is beautiful, don't be deceived. 
I sit in coffee shops, restaurants, and bars all the time with people, and I have yet to find a person that says, Nirvana, you're looking at it. (laughs) I haven't found one person. Every single person has a story. They're lonely. Something. And what startles me is how many of these people come from church backgrounds. When I first moved here six, over six years ago, I thought a lot of my ministry outdoors would be, would be evangelizing, telling people about Christ. No, I'm guessing 98% of them come from church families. In fact, I've only can think of one person that didn't come from a church family. They walked away. I was sitting in one of the bars last year, and, and a young man uh, was with a friend, and, and he brought his friend in. And he said, so you're a pastor. What's wrong with me sleeping with my girlfriend? I said, dude, you can't get over it, can you? And he said, what? What do you mean? And I said, people don't walk up and ask me that question. You got a faith background somewhere in there or you wouldn't have asked it. What happened to you? And he got really angry. And he told me the story of what happened. And I said, yeah, I'd be really angry too if that happened to me in church. And, and so I asked him, are you, are you guilty of trying to throw out the baby with the bathwater? You know, you had a bad church experience, so you're trying to get rid of everything and you just can't do it. That's what I love about the Holy Spirit. He just doesn't let you do it. And I find that all over the county, everywhere I go and talking to people, they just can't let it go. But one thing is for sure, they are not happy. It's an illusion. They're chasing after something. There's a, there's a genuine created part of us that says, this better not be all there is or I'm really disappointed. Am I right? Don't we have at some level a basic hope that there's got to be something better than that? Okay, Romans 8. This is the, we summer on, we looked at Jesus' teachings, and now we're going to spend the rest of the summer in Romans 8. The whole rest of the summer in Romans 8. Because this is the chapter that unlocks that door to understanding the Spirit. Now remember the metaphor. The cage door is open, and we're trying to learn to take a step out into a world we're created for, but we don't know anything about it. It's scary. It's hard. And it doesn't necessarily get easier. It doesn't necessarily get easier. It gets better. In Romans 8, in verse 9, Paul says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, I want to make a simple observation on these passages. If you have your Bible, he says, you're not in the realm of the flesh, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Verse 10, if Christ is in you. Verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 13, if you live according to the flesh. So he has all these if clauses. Okay? So let me start with this idea. Uh, I try not to get too technical, but every now and then I have to give you a little technical explanation. When you look in the Greek text here, they have different ways of communicating probability and possibility. Every one of these constructions is assuming it to be true. Okay? So for the sake of argument, it is true. You can almost translate it since this is true. But we don't want to lose the mystery of the if clause. So you could say something like this. 
You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed, and it is true, the Spirit of God lives in you. All of these down through here are expressed, they're constructed that way, because Paul is trying to now give a sense of encouragement of what life is like, truly like, under the Spirit or outside of the cage. Okay? You can begin to relax. Now, what happens with this passage? Something very unique is happening, is that we're beginning to make the turn. Jesus taught a lot about the individual, okay? And with this passage, we're now moving into a church context, into a community context. The very first way he starts this, again, he's, sorry to be technical, you, however, okay? This is the only place in Romans where this is, in, is placed in a position we call emphasis, you, plural, y'all. I hate to defer to my Texas friends. <laughs> They're all sitting right up here. We need a Texas Bible where the you is, is either plural or singular and you could see it. But y'all... We just made a shift to the community, and we're going to introduce an entirely new idea here. And this idea is that when the Spirit lets, opens that cage and lets us out, we enter into something very different than we experienced alone in the cage. We step right from the cage into a community that should be safe. It should be safe. I've used this picture before. How many of you remember the movie? It's, it's many years old now, but The Matrix. Any of you see it? Let me see. Enough of you? Okay. It's one of the. It's it's old, but it's worth seeing. It's it's without question one of the best portrayals of the Christian message. They asked the two brothers. Well, they interviewed them and said, "Where'd you get some credit?" They said, "Right out of the Bible. It's the best science fiction book ever written." And I uh, used to, when it was fresh, I would have my students go through and find all the biblical quotes and references. They're everywhere. And so you may remember the scene when he takes the red and the green. It's become kind of an iconic statement in our culture, the red or green pill. And he wakes up and he comes out of the, kind of looks like a toilet bowl. And he's trying to unplug himself and he starts to look around. And as he looks around, he sees as far as the eye can see all the human bodies that are generators that's a picture of what coming alive in Christ is all about. You begin to realize the absolute horror of sin. The complete destructiveness of sin. Don't be fooled. Sin will fool you every step of the way. It is destructive in every way that you can analyze it. And that's what that picture is as he begins to look around and he sees as far as the eye can see the reality. He's, then he unplugs it and he enters into a team that's close-knit, protective of each other. They care for each other. That's a portrayal of what happens when you step out of the cage. You step out of a cage where you're basically dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Let's be honest, Paul says that. He says it in numerous places. You're dead. You're dead. That's the reality of the world. You may not think so, but you are. In other words, you can't see true spiritual reality because there's no life there. We've talked about this. So when you step out of the cage, part of that journey is being given life by the Holy Spirit. 
And so you begin to wake up and you begin to look around you. And when you start talking to your friends, you begin to realize everyone is in trouble. Everyone. Every marriage struggles at some level. I've said many times, if your marriage is in trouble, don't be ashamed. Our marriage has been in trouble. Come get help. We've said that over and over again. So we're turning, we're making the turn now. You step out of the cage. It's not you by yourself and it's not you and the Holy Spirit. It's you by means of the Holy Spirit stepping into a community that should be safe. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. So you, however, you plural y'all, okay, are not in the realm of the flesh, now, the flesh, let me say a word about that. Okay, you all probably know that that's kind of a, a metaphor for the sin, uh, the sin life. But let me put it in its context in the first century so you can understand what he's about to say. It's easy for us to grasp in terms of our own culture what the flesh looks like. But picture from the, from the standpoint of a first century Christian. The Roman Empire was built on the system of patronage. So here's what it looks like. I'm the senior pastor here. So I say to Jude or Mark... I will, let, I will give you the privilege of working for me. Oh, actually, I kind of do it this way. No, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I will give you the privilege of working for me, and in return for that job, you're going to pay me some of your taxes, some of your money. Okay? That's patronage. We just created a bound relationship that if she gets out of it, she's in real trouble. So then she goes to her employees, uh, Mike Sukart, he's somewhere in here, I think. Mike, I'll give you the privilege of working for me if you give me some of your money. And they worked their way all the way down to the slaves, the system of patronage. And so it was a bound system from top to bottom. It was based on favor. I'll do you a favor, and in return, you owe me. Okay. So can you just picture just for a moment how interlocking and how controlling that would be? That's at the heart of this concept of flesh. That's the world that they knew. It's the only world that they knew. So now imagine Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Can you imagine not owing anybody anything? You're not bound. You're free. And all the way down, everybody had some level of slavery. But the lower you got, the more harsh and uh, that slavery became. More abusive. They had slaves. So when Paul says, we are servants, that's not a very good English word, honestly. Because they didn't have, they had slaves and free people and that was it. So when he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, some of the newer translations say, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And honestly, that's what you are. You were a slave to sin, Romans 6. You've been given your freedom. Now you're a slave to Jesus Christ. And what does a slave do? Whatever the master tells them. Right? Now, in Jesus' case, something unusual happens. Because what's portrayed all throughout Romans 6, 7, and 8 is this. I'm a slave, and I'm standing on the docket, and the master, called sin, is going to sell me. Maybe I'm not producing enough. Maybe I'm getting too old. Who knows? And along comes another master, Jesus, who pays the price. We call that redemption or ransom. And so he buys me. And I have transferred, this is Romans 6, from the slave called sin, slave master, to the slave master called Jesus. 
Now that's a picture they're all familiar with. But then something startling happens. As a slave master, Jesus says, you're now free. He bought us to give us our freedom. So picture that in this in this first century world from the top all the way to the bottom where everybody was caught in this system of patronage. You owed people. See how stifling that would be? So Galatians 5, it's a freedom that Christ has set you free is a remarkable passage in world history. Well, this one is no different. This is remarkable in world history. You're no longer in that realm. The realm of the flesh. That's what they would have understood. I'm not bound to anybody. I have been given my freedom. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and indeed He does. Now remember, this is a y'all. So y'all are no longer bound to this system of patronage. You're no longer bound to it. You've been given your freedom. And then all of a sudden he shifts the gears. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, even though your body, he just went from the flesh to the body. Okay? It makes you almost think that maybe these are synonymous terms, but they're not. He goes on and he says, if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, and this is true that he is, he from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Now, it's very easy to naturally think he's talking about resurrection. If that's the case, then this is a very unusual passage. He never uses this terminology over the resurrection. He talks about raising up your bodies. Every time he talks about giving life, every time Paul uses that phrase over and over and over again, he's talking about quality of life. Maybe he's talking about what Jesus talked about in, in uh, John 10.10. 10. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Okay? In fact, he addresses this, what it means to die, back in Romans 6. He says in Romans 6.6, 6, For we know that our old self, that's us, was crucified with him. That's dying. We died. Okay? So that the body ruled by sin might no longer might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So here he gives us a context of what dying is all about. I told a few weeks ago, I told the story of my very first baptism. I uh, was in Germany in a chapel, a military chapel. And my very first baptism, newly ordained, young missionary, getting ready to baptize a bunch of soldiers. The chapel is packed, completely packed, standing room only, because all these soldiers invited all their, their uh, platoons and squads to come. And so we have all these people. And so I'm really nervous. And so I told the, sorry to be crude. I, the first couple, I said that the man is going to get baptized first so that he could hold a towel for the wife when she gets baptized. And she said, I don't want to get baptized. I want to get baptized first. I said, why on earth would you want to get baptized first? She said, well, he's going to pee in the water. <laughs> I said, he's not going to pee in the water. Okay, now remember, this is my very first baptism. So when they're stepping into the water, he's going in first. I've got the microphone over here. He leans over on this side and it says, I'm going to pee in the water. Just get in the water. So I'm co I've completely forgot all my theology and everything I was supposed to do. So I was taught to baptize, you know, dead to sin, alive in Christ, right? That's what Romans 6 teaches. So I put him under the water. I said, dead to Christ. And I'm holding him underwater. I said, 
and you can hear a quarter of the recording. Uh, uh, wait, that's not right. Hold it. I'm nervous as all as can be. It's my very first baptism. He's thinking I'm holding him under the water because he's pulling my chain. So I finally and I said, okay, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, dead to sin. That's it. Alive to Christ. Everybody starts applauding. The Lutheran chapter, chaplain comes up to me afterwards and says, you know, we did die to Christ. I've just never heard it applied in this context. <laughs> That's what Romans 6 teaches. We have died. Our body has died. Our body of sin has died. So Paul backs up just for a moment. He introduced the y'all, but he says, let me remind you. Let me remind you. If Christ is in you, even though your body is dead, we say subject to, subject to death, but that's what it means. Even though you have died. It's one of the core truths of Christianity. You died with Christ. You died to sin. That's what that means. Even though this is true, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And we actually have several other metaphors throughout the teachings of Paul and Peter on this, that our body is aging. Any of you feel that? <laughs> Been through 11 surgeries, I get it. But the Spirit is growing in life. And this is the foundation for why a community works. A community of faith. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if that same spirit is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. He will, and he's not talking about resurrection here because this phrase is always used. He will increase the quality of your life in Christ. True, resurrection does occur, but that's in another passage. Okay, this passage is talking uniquely, I believe, about the quality of life that we enjoy. John 10, 10. Okay, because of the spirit who lives in you. Okay, pause just for a second. Do you realize, do you actually genuinely believe the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead? And Paul later on and the other authors say, has anyone ever come back to life? Ever? That same spirit is the same spirit working in you and therefore in us. This is the spirit that when the cage door is open, we are no longer alone. As we saw a few weeks ago, I will send you another advocate. Someone to stand with you every step of the way that takes your hand and guides you through every part of life. You don't ever have to worry about life outside the cage. It's new to you, and it's challenging, but you have God himself walking with us. But then he goes on and does something very interesting here. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but not to the flesh. He switches back to the flesh. So he's talking about what it's life in the, in the world that we live in. And then he jumps right into this whole body metaphor that we have died with Christ. He's a reminder. Now he gets to his main point. His main point, we're not under obligation to the flesh. Imagine being in that system of patronage and you have been given freedom. You, we no longer, we as a church no longer have to conform 
to the competitive strategies, all of the things that we see in culture that dictate what our significance looks like, what our success looks like, all of that. We're no longer bound to that. We are something very different, very unique, because we have freedom. It's very unique. It's interesting, one of my, on my journey to aging and to being a pastor, I've asked many, many, uh, many of the older men, what's it like? What do you wish you knew at 70 or 80? I remember sitting with Merle Wilhite in the hospital, some of you remember him, and asked him, what is it like? To be told you have a week or two left to live. And he goes, I won't ever forget it. I made it. (laughs) So what do you mean you made it? And he goes, I was faithful to my God. I was faithful to my wife. I made it. What did Paul say? The time of my departure has come, right? And I said, okay, make me a better pastor. What do you wish you knew 25 years ago that you know today? And one of the things, and I've heard this consistently, was uh, I wasn't prepared to retire. How do you move from a world system that defines success into a world where significance is defined very different? That's what Paul's talking about here. We are no longer under that system. And we would do well to work within our own church to develop a healthier view of what significance actually looks like. What does it look like? He goes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. He's back to y'all. If y'all is a church, if you engage in these worldly practices, you're going to see the life sucked right out of you. That's the church in America. That's the church in America. Timothy Tennant, the president of Asbury, a physiologist, says that we're now in our eighth or ninth or tenth year of the church declining at a rate in America of 4,500 members a day. It's declining. I teach a class at the seminary with, past- with uh, pastors who have experience, and uh, it's how to revitalize a declining or plateau church, and they have to, uh, they have to write a paper. They have to analyze their own church. We help them build a model of how to analyze their church. And these are some of the stories that they tell me. They, um, I'll give you one example. Church that's about 200 years old. In 1957, they amended the constitution of the church so that all Sunday school teachers have to be certified public school teachers. And they're wondering why they have two children. In 1960, they decided to start a teaching ministry to the, uh, uh, through TV. And so they bought all this equipment, two full-time employees. They've never upgraded the equipment since then. So this young pastor did an analysis of viewership. They have zero viewers. One of the guys said that they have two, uh, two committees that run the church. They have the... Uh, Elders, which oversee ministry, and they have the trustees, which oversee the finances. They don't get along. It takes nine months to a year to uh, get a reimbursement for one of the employees. And they can't figure out why every ministry has opened their own bank accounts and there's no tithing to the church. All the money's going to the individual ministries and bypassing this process. These are real stories. I could go on and on and on. 
The church in America is in trouble. This is true. This is true. If you live according to the world system, it's going to suck the life right out of you. You will die. That's the same way of saying that. But the very next phrase, but if by the Spirit, y'all, put to death, this is a present tense, you continually, continually deal with sin, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is a picture of what church should be like. It's not judgmental. It's not confrontational. It's the process of a married couple coming in who's in trouble. We help them with their marriage. And they begin to blossom and mature. They invite their friends whose marriage is in trouble. And they come. And we help them. This is that process over and over and over again. This is a picture of a redemptive church. This is what the spirit of life The Spirit of God is all about. And this is what it means to step out of the cage into a healthy culture. By God's grace, we are a healthy church. Since I've been here six years, uh, I only know of two divorces in a world where the divorce rate is currently 54%. As we deal with marriages that are in trouble, that divorce rate begins to decline. And as it declines, we shine brighter and brighter. We're experiencing what the Spirit intended all along. In every area of sin, it does, I've said many times, honestly, it doesn't matter to me what sin you struggle with. I, I don't care about that. What I care about is what's the impact um, in your life. The elders have a slightly different concern. What's the impact in the church? So they monitor the church unity. That's their job. I monitor pastoral care. That's my job. And so it doesn't matter to me what sin you have. I've sat across from probably every sin that you can imagine. And heard it told to me across tables and helped people. But I know, I know that if I can get you interested in understanding who the Spirit truly is and that you don't have to live back in the cage, you don't have to live with a failed marriage, you don't don't have to live with an alcohol issue, you don't have to live with a pornography issue, whatever it is, it doesn't matter to me, you don't have to live with it. That's what life outside the cage is about. And as we practice that as a community, over and over again, health begins to grow and we experience greater and greater joy. And therefore, we reflect to a world out there the true nature of what Christianity is all about. We sat with the editor. Uh, we went on the Jeep Club. Thanks, Bob. Yesterday, uh, no, we had 2,000 Jeeps on this Jeep Club. We all came over here for lunch, and the editor for the Summit Daily came with us on the strip, and so he wanted to talk to me afterwards. So he sat down. He said, why do you do this as a church? Why do we do what? Why do you have a Jeep Club? So why wouldn't we? And he said, well, most churches don't. Oh, I see where you're getting at. Because we want to show the community that, number one, we care about them, and number two, we can have fun like everybody else. I love all of our clubs. I love the people that go skiing, the people that go sailing. Yes. The people that go whatever, four-wheel driving, all of them. I love all of them because they're out there showing the county that Christians have fun as well. We understand life. We understand it. One more little technical detail here. If you put to, de- put to death the misdeeds of the body, if you progressively work on this, this word we translate misdeeds, it's a very fascinating word that uh, is 
really being thought about in current day theology. It's the word praxis. It's a Greek word praxis. There's a difference between practice and praxis. Practice is a behavior. Praxis is a behavior that captures the essence of what you really believe. And this is where a healthy church looks different than, say, a government organization. A government organization can run a food bank just like we do. At one level, they're the same. We give out food. We often give out food to the same people. You can ask Jude about that or Mike Shukart. The same people come around looking for food for both, from both groups. But because we engage in this concept of praxis, what that means is our giving out food is now captured by a spirit of love, which the government can't do. Can't be done. That's what a healthy church does. It teaches our people to believe so much in what we are saying that our theology begins to read. Because we love people, that's praxis. That's a way of being put that on the negative side away. In other words, quit believing that sin is going to make you happy. It is not. And therefore, quit acting that way. That's what a healthy church is. That's it. So the Holy Spirit opens the door and we begin to take steps very tentatively, but we step into a community. That's something we haven't brought up until today. And by the way, this teaching of Paul is very unique. Nothing, nothing in the ancient world that has this idea. This is world-changing. This is the first time in world history this teaching floats to the surface. That we actually can make a difference, not only in the lives of our people here, because they come to experience that safety where they can say, I never met a person that got married and said, I want to get divorced in five years. Never met a drug addict that says, you know, I started doing drugs because I wanted to become a drug addict. That's not the way it works. And so they ended up down this blind alley, and we have the ability by the Spirit of God, by producing a healthy culture right here of saying, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. That's redemption. So we've said all along, no judgment, no criticism. You get honesty, yes, when you come talk to us, but you won't get judgment or criticism. It doesn't matter whatever you're struggling with. It really doesn't matter. The Spirit of God is powerful enough. As he says in Isaiah and as he says in John, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That's the God that we serve. That's what happens when you step out of the cage. You're not alone. You step into something like this. Father, thank you for just your goodness. Thank you for... um, Not leaving us alone, but sending another advocate to walk with us and for creating a community of faith. A community of faith that, if done well and is healthy, brings us assurance, confidence, and it's so different than the world's system of competition, division, fracture. It's a system where we find help, where we find love and grace. Thank you for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.